Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And okay, I think we are now down to the home stretch here. So if you've just joined us, Over the past several long episodes, we've been going through popular acronyms and initialisms in tech to explain what they mean and kind of give some background on each of them. This is the sixth and final episode for all those terms, keeping in mind that we did skip a couple, but that'll just have to wait for a follow-up at some point. We are currently in the S's, so let's get right to it and not waste any more time. First up is SEO. This stands for Search Engine Optimization, and it's pretty much what it sounds like. SEO covers a suite of strategies and best practices that give web page creators a better chance of ranking well in various search engines. And really, when we say search engines, we mostly mean Google. Uh, According to Global Stats, Google accounts for a staggering 92.2% of the search engine market share. So really, focusing on anything else doesn't make any sense. You're just you're targeting such a small audience that you should really focus on Google. But let's talk a little bit about why SEO is such a big deal in the first place. Well, according to Statista, a different site that tracks these sorts of things, nearly 30% of all web traffic is funneled through search. That was back in 2019, at least. So nearly a third of all traffic on the internet is dependent upon search. Search represents a way for people to discover web content, but only if you rank well enough to be found in a search, right? If your web page isn't showing up pretty early on in search results, you might as well not even be in the listing at all. And here's another statistic. This one is according to WebFX. Only 25% of users ever bother to go beyond the first page of search results. So that means 75% of people using the web will use a search result that appears on the first page and they never go beyond that first page, which means if your website doesn't pop up in that first page for whatever relevant search criteria match your site, then you're not going to get very much web traffic through search. And it gets worse, actually. When you look at search results, you really only see the first few listed before you need to start scrolling down the page. Uh, We would typically call the search results that appear below the screen as being below the fold. That's a term that dates back to newspapers. And some folks won't even go beyond the fold, right? They'll just look at the first few and they won't even scroll down. So you really need to have your page rank very high in search results for whatever the relevant search queries are for your web page. Google uses a ranking system for search results that has changed several times since it first appeared. Now, in the old days, the criteria that really determined where a specific result would appear within search would include stuff like how old the site was. Was it, had it been around for a while? Uh, How many other sites were linking to this page? The idea being that if a lot of other sites are linking into a specific one, that specific one should be pretty good, right? It's kind of like wisdom of the crowd. And other stuff like that really played a big part. 
Today, it's uh, even more complicated, and that's what gave birth to the idea of search engine optimization. So the goal is to give a web page every advantage so that it has the best chance of ranking high in search results for you know, relevant queries. And a lot of the strategies in SEO are individually pretty small. They can seem insignificant, but when they're used collectively, they can all make a big difference. That is, until Google changes its algorithm again and all your strategies no longer work, which is a thing. The dependence on search engines can become a really limiting factor on web-based companies. For websites that generate revenue through ads and those that depend on search traffic, it can be devastating when Google makes a change. A site could be doing really well in search one quarter, and then its performance the following quarter might plummet because of a change in Google's algorithm, and that means that revenue will plummet as well. It's tough. These days, search isn't the only area the companies need to focus on. Social networks are another big source of web traffic. And so there are similar strategies meant to encourage people to visit sites through links on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Moving on. Next, we have SMS, or Short Message Service, which is kind of another way to say text messaging. SMS is on top of communication protocols that both determine how messages can transmit over telecommunications lines and also places some limits on those communications. For example, the SMS allows for transmission of messages of up to 160 characters per message. This is why Twitter had a 140-character limit for a really long time. Twitter was built to work with SMS so that people could tweet or receive tweets via text on their phones, and, you know, 20 characters were set aside for stuff like user handles. A variant of SMS is MMS, or Multimedia Messaging Service, which can send audio, video, and images via cellular communication. All right, moving on. S, little o, big C. So SOC, and there are actually quite a few tech-related topics that have the acronym SOC. If you're actually talking all caps, you might mean Security Operations Center, which is a centralized department in charge of dealing with computer security, typically within a company or other organization. Uh, you could mean big S, little o, big C, and talk about separation of concerns. That refers to an approach in computer programming. But I actually wanted to look at a different version of SOC, that being system on a chip. This is a type of integrated circuit that includes all the basic components of a computer all on a single chip. So that would include a processor, computer memory, some form of storage, and input and output ports. So as the name suggests, it's a full computer system all located on a single chip. This is all about miniaturization and building out mobile devices that have lots of features in them. So they tend to be pretty power efficient as well. And you can find SOC in stuff like smartphones or car systems or Internet of Things devices, and that's just a start. There are also lots of research facilities that use system-on-a-chip design for various scientific projects. And they can even be used in laptops and small PCs because... They can be powerful and really efficient when it comes to how much power they, they consume, how much electricity they need to operate. Okay, burning through it. Let's get to the next one, SQL. This stands for Structured Query Language. This language relates to databases. And think of all the stuff you might do with a database, such as 
You might want to update records in the database. You might want to search a database. You might want to pull a specific record. All of those basic things. Well, SQL is useful when you're dealing with structured data. Some engineers at IBM originally developed SQL in the 1970s. Uh, back then, it was actually called SQL. Some people will still refer to SQL as SQL. But the company that really took the ball and ran with it was Oracle, which built an entire industry around database construction and management. So if you ever see SQL, that's what it's in reference to. It's this language that tends to be used uh, regarding databases. Next, we have SSD, Solid State Drive. Now, in a previous episode in this series, we talked about HDDs, or hard disk drives, and how those storage devices use physical platters to store data magnetically. A solid state drive is a different type of data storage system. Rather than using spinning platters and magnetic storage, SSDs use an integrated circuit to store data. The most common method is to use what is called flash memory. This is a non-volatile form of computer storage. And just as a reminder, that means that the information stored in this kind of format will remain intact even if the computer were to lose power. You can erase and write over stuff that's stored in flash memory, so it's not like it's set in stone, but otherwise information will remain persistent within flash memory. SSDs have several advantages over HDDs. Uh, for one thing, they have no moving parts, and so they are silent. Uh, an HDD requires a motor to spin the platters, and depending on the make of the, the hard disk drive, it can sometimes be kind of loud when it starts to spin up to speed. Uh, they, SSDs are, are more resistant to physical damage as well. If you were to drop a, a hard disk drive, you would run the risk of knocking the platters out of alignment or breaking some mechanical component. But SSDs are a bit more shock resistant than that. Uh, they are not damage proof. <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that they're like Superman and invulnerable. SSDs are also typically much smaller, I mean physically smaller than hard disk drives. That's also a big advantage. It means you can make smaller form factors for computers as well as making lighter computers as well. This gets to be pretty important when you're working with stuff like laptops and portable computers and smartphones and that kind of thing. Computers can pull information from SSDs much more quickly than they can from HDDs. For that reason, solid-state drives are the preferred long-term storage solution for people who need to run very low-latency applications. That includes gamers. A good solid-state drive means that you have little to no load times when you're initiating a program. So let's say you're playing a really, you know, resource-intensive game. Let's say it's something like a big open world game, like an Assassin's Creed game. Well, with a solid state drive, you might be able to run all over the, the world map in that game and never encounter a loading screen. That's a pretty big deal for gamers. Generally speaking, solid state drives are much more expensive than hard disk drives if you're looking at it on a per gigabyte basis. Also, it's easier and far less expensive to find really high-capacity hard disk drives compared to solid-state drives. Uh, when you start looking at the multi-terabyte range of storage, hard disk drives are significantly less expensive than solid-state drives. So it's not as easy as saying that solid-state drives are outright better than hard disk drives. It actually depends on what you want to use storage for 
and how much you have to spend on it, like how much money you've got. For gamers, solid-state drives might be important for holding whatever games are in current rotation of play, and then you might want a supplemental hard disk drive that's standing by that holds on to other titles that aren't in your current player rotation. That's just an example. Moving on, SSID. This stands for Service Set Identifier. Uh, this is more or less a fancy way of saying network name. They can be up to 32 characters long. There's no minimum length, though. And routers typically come with a default SSID, usually something that relates to whatever company manufactured that router, followed by some letters or numbers or both. Generally speaking, it's usually a good idea to go into the settings of your router. You can usually find some pretty easy instructions on how to log into your local router. Uh, it's not typically very hard. And then you change the default name of your network to something else. Uh, you can also pretty much name it anything you like within those 32 characters. So for example, I can use my phone to serve as a Wi-Fi hotspot, which I do occasionally whenever I can't access reliable Wi-Fi. But, you know, I do happen to have a strong cell signal. I can use it as, as sort of like a, a Wi-Fi modem. My phone's hotspot name is totally trustworthy Wi-Fi because I think that's funny and because it's the sort of name that would give other folks just a bit of a pause before they would try to connect to it because, like, what if it's totally not trustworthy? I also protect it with a pretty strong password, so actually connecting to that network is kind of tough. But the reason you want to go in and change the default name and password is because some companies use a blanket default password, like using admin as a login and the word password as password, and that could mean that someone else might get access to your network and cause all sorts of mischief, from attempting to snoop on what you're doing to using your network as part of like a botnet attack on a target. Typically, routers have a sticker somewhere on them that lists the default SSID, though obviously if you go through in settings and you change this, then that default's no longer going to apply. You can use settings on your computer or smartphone to look at SSIDs within range, so if you were to come into possession of a router and you discovered along the way that someone had changed the SSID, you could scan the available networks and look to see if you could find the strongest signals and, and try to identify which one is your actual router. Of course, if someone also changed the default password, you might be kind of stuck. Though many of these machines also have a reset button so that you can reset it to the, the, uh, the, the manufacturer default settings and get into it that way. You can also change settings on your router so that it won't broadcast the SSID to nearby devices. That means that in this case, when people search for networks, they won't see yours as they're scanning the SSIDs. You can only connect to such a network if you already know the SSID and you specifically direct your device to connect with it. That requires manually changing wireless settings on your device. Now, this sounds like it's a pretty powerful way to protect yourself, but really it's more of a surface-level protection. Hiding your SSID might save you from the newbiest of noobs when it comes to, you know, bad actors, but folks who know what they're doing can still track network traffic with the right know-how and the right tools. Maybe I'll reach out to friend of the show, Shannon Morse, to guest on an episode to talk about the steps you can take to best secure your home network. I think that would be a valuable conversation to have. Okay, we've got some acronyms and initialisms, but we're starting to head into the home stretch. We're first going to take 
a quick break. We're back and we're starting with SSL. And I referenced this a little bit with HTTPS. SSL stands for Secure Socket Layer. Uh, this is actually an outdated term. The more current version is the TLS or Transport Layer Security. But in either case, the purpose is to authenticate and encrypt communication links between networked computers. So these are protocols that allow for secure and secret communications. Now, when I say secret communications, I don't mean that the fact that communication is happening is a secret. SSL and TLS do not hide the fact that communication is happening between computers. Instead, they encrypt and obfuscate the nature of that communication. So it's kind of like seeing two of your friends whispering to each other. You know, you know they're up to no good, but you don't know what they're specifically plotting. You might even suspect that they're whispering about you, but you can't be certain because you're not able to hear what they're saying. So what I'm saying is I know you're up to something, Lena and Shay, and I don't approve. Not one bit. Knock it off. All right. All right, that got a little personal. Let's let's get back on track. SSL and TLS work by binding websites with a digital document called an X.509 certificate, which assigns pairs of keys to those websites. One key is a public key. This is the key that the website can share with the world. Anyone communicating with this website through a browser does so using the public key, which encrypts the messages that are sent to that website. The only way to decrypt those messages, to change it back into meaningful information, is to use the private key. The website retains the private key for itself. It does not share the private key. This way, all communication sent to the website can only be decoded by the website alone, unless some other entity were to somehow gain possession of the private key or use a method like brute force to try and replicate the private key. That brute force thing is possible, depending upon the nature of the key. However, it might be so difficult as to be practically impossible. So in other words, yeah, you could in theory be able to do it, but it might take such a long time to accomplish that you would be long dead by the time your computer finally managed it. In addition to encrypting information, the website can digitally sign documents that anyone with the public key can verify as being authentic. So SSL and TLS help ensure that private information, like say a credit card number, remains secure and that the entity you're sharing that information with is authenticated. So you know for sure with whom you're sharing that information. It's why it's important to look for that HTTPS or that closed padlock symbol in your browser whenever you're interacting with a site and sharing sensitive information. Next up, we have TCP IP. Now, collectively, these make up the Internet Protocol Suite. Uh, individually, these refer to the Transmission Control Protocol, or TCP, and the Internet Protocol, or IP, and we nearly always refer to both of them together, as they represent the set of communication protocols that allow computers to connect together in a network and, you know, actually do stuff. These days, it seems natural that various computational devices should be able to link up with each other and communicate. It's been that way for decades now. But once upon a time, this wasn't true. Computers were self-contained silos. 
They served important purposes, but they did so in isolation. Different computers made from different manufacturers had proprietary means of operation, meaning there was no common language, if you will. So even if you could connect two different computers together, they wouldn't necessarily be able to interoperate. It would be kind of like putting me on the phone with someone who could only speak and understand Mandarin. That person and I would be unable to make any sort of meaningful conversation. In the 1960s, the Department of Defense's Advanced Research Project Agency, then called ARPA, these days we know it as DARPA, set out to create the means for computers to connect with one another in networks. This would be the underlying foundation for modern computer networks in general and the Internet, a.k.a. the network of networks, in particular. Vinton Cerf and Robert Klein, who both joined the project in the early 1970s, would pioneer the work on the basic set of protocols that would allow for the networked communications between computers. Now, to get into the nuts and bolts of TCP IP would require a full episode, or probably more than one, so we're going to save that for later. It's good to know that they represent the basic set of rules for computer networking. It's the set of instructions that determine how communication between machines happens. Next up, we've got UPS, and we are not talking about the delivery service here. Instead, we're talking about uninterruptible power supplies. That's what UPS stands for in this context. And as the name implies, these are technologies that supply power to other things, even should a normal power source fail. So allow me to paint a scenario, as the quizzer would say. Uh, This is one that I have maybe personally experienced, possibly on numerous occasions. So let us say that you have an intrepid writer for a website, and this writer is plugging away at an article. Plug, plug, plug. And let us say that this optimistic, naive young writer last saved the document that they happen to be working on quite some time ago. Maybe they've written a couple of pages worth of work since the last time they saved the document. And let us say that an inopportune moment, uh, the power goes out inside the office building where this brash, handsome young writer is working. And because the writer is working on a desktop computer without a battery backup, That machine crashes and all the work that was created since that last save disappears into the ether. And then our unnamed but presumably dashingly handsome writer, as all get out, laments the fact that they will now have to start over back at their last save point and recreate all the work that they had done in order to write about how gooseneck trailer hitches work. Yeah, that happened to me. And I could have been spared a great deal of frustration if I had had my desktop computer plugged into an uninterruptible power supply. So these devices typically plug into a power source like a wall outlet, and then you plug other devices into the UPS itself. So the UPS plugs into the wall, you plug your stuff into the UPS, kind of like a power strip, right? Uh, In fact, some UPS devices look a lot like power strips. So... It's not just a power strip. The UPS also contains a battery backup or some other means of storing electricity. You know, maybe it's a supercapacitor or something, but battery backup is pretty common. And if the normal power supply, that is power coming from the wall outlet, suffers an outage, the backup power supply, the battery or whatever, 
comes on practically instantaneously, at least fast enough so that it prevents an interruption of power to your devices. So any devices you have plugged into the UPS continue to receive power. Now, typically, a UPS doesn't have a huge capacity for storing electricity. So this isn't meant for you to just keep on working away while the power is out. The battery life might only allow for a few minutes of continued operation, but that can be enough for you to be able to save your progress and then shut down your equipment through proper methods. This can help prevent damage to your work and your equipment, and it can give you time to get stuff in a safe mode while you wait for the power to come back on. Frequently, a UPS can also act as a surge protector, so it can prevent voltage spikes from damaging equipment. Some UPS gadgets need to be reset after a power outage. Some of them will beep at you a lot. Typically, they beep when they are running low on battery power, and this is a message that you really do need to start shutting down all of your plugged-in devices if you don't want them to suddenly lose power. Uh, but they can also beep as an indication of capacity overload. In that case, you have plugged-in devices that have too great a demand for power for the UPS to accommodate, and you need to distribute that load across other devices. Next, we have URL. This stands for Uniform Resource Locator, but you could just call it a web address. Essentially, this is what tells computers where on a network a particular resource resides. It's kind of like your physical address. So a URL relates to a specific location on a specific server within a specific network. When you type out a web address in a browser, you're essentially telling the browser, I want to see the stuff that is stored at this location. And the browser sends out a request up through your network to the internet. Then routers direct that request to the proper destination. And thanks to that handy dandy URL that cross-references to that location, your request arrives there at its proper destination. Or if you mistype the web address, you get something else. Probably an error, but possibly someone's page, especially if someone is squatting on commonly made typos, that's still a thing. Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who invented the World Wide Web, defined URLs in an RFC. Do you remember RFCs? That stands for Request for Comments. I covered it in the last episode. Next, we have USB. This stands for Universal Serial Bus, and it is a standardized connection for all sorts of stuff. And boy, howdy, am I thankful for it, because it really made things easy. Uh, I'm not even being facetious here. USBs are fantastic. So in the old, old days, we would use all sorts of different types of connection ports to connect stuff to other stuff. And really, I'm focusing primarily on computers here because I feel that that's what most of us associate with this kind of thing. Although I will allow that people who are really into home entertainment centers or or audio setups are also really familiar with the... the uh, the burdens of having to make lots of different connections using different types of cables and ports. Anyway, back in the old days, uh, computers had all sorts of different connection ports on them. And I'm talking about stuff like parallel ports, serial ports, more specific stuff like PS2 connectors or DIN connectors. Uh, some game controllers required a special game port. Typically, you would find those on some of the more you know popular sound cards back in the day. Sound cards were a thing too because you didn't have uh, integrated sound chips in computers. 
Uh, so you would have to install a sound card in your computer, and on the back plate of your PC, you would have a new port there where you could plug in a controller. It was a real mess. Uh, some of these ports required expansion cards, and you would have to slot those into your motherboard, just like the sound cards I mentioned. Your keyboard might need to go into one specific port, your mouse in another. And then in the 1990s, that began to change. That's when we saw the introduction of the USB standard. USB allows for the transmission of data and power over the same cable, and it did not take long for computer accessory manufacturers to start making stuff like USB keyboards or USB computer mice. Uh, and later on, we saw more stuff like computer printers and docking stations and stuff like, you know, you know, a docking station for an MP3 player, that kind of thing. The USB standard itself also evolved with more recent versions capable of carrying far more data per second than older versions. And this meant that now suddenly you had a universal kind of connection port and universal cable system where you could connect all your different stuff to any of those available ports on your computer. You didn't have to remember, oh, this one is for the printer. This one is for an extra display. Like if it was a USB, then you could plug it into any port that was USB on your machine. With the USB 3.0 standard, we're looking at transmission speeds of 5 gigabits per second and beyond. Uh, USB 3.2 generation 2x2 has a top speed of 10 gigabits per second across two lanes of transmission, which gives you a total of 20 gigabits per second bandwidth. So now we can use USBs for stuff far more demanding than just powering a computer mouse. Now, there's still the issue of various connectors, even with USB. I mean, there's nothing like mixing up USB B mini with USB B micro uh, with USB C connectors and all that kind of stuff. But still, it's leagues better than the old days of the mishmash of connectors, and it makes managing that stuff way easier. Next, we have VGA. This stands for Video Graphics Array. Speaking of connectors, this was one of them, and some computer manufacturers continue to support VGA connections, though not nearly as many as they used to. These connectors support computer video output, and so this is a port that you would use to connect a computer to a compatible display or monitor. The uh, connectors have three rows of five holes in them, and those line up with the 15 pins that are in the cables you would use to connect your computer to a display. These days, you typically see this replaced with more recent technologies like HDMI. Okay. We have one last batch of acronyms and initialisms to get through. Let's see if I can do this without running super long. But first, let's take a quick break. All right, here we go. VM, this stands for virtual machine, which I touched on a little bit in this series. A virtual machine is the emulation of a computer system. Uh, you might use specialized software, some specialized hardware, or a combination of the two in order to make this happen. And there are a lot of reasons why you would want to run a virtual machine on top of actual physical hardware. For example, you might have a really powerful computer and you want to run separate processes that should not intermingle on a single machine. So rather than buy a second machine and then divide up the tasks, you create virtual machines on your one physical computer. And each virtual machine acts like its own standalone computer. 
they handle a specific task and the two tasks won't come into contact with each other. Virtual machines can each have their own dedicated computer resources. Or maybe you've got a computer like a Mac, but you want to run PC software on it. So you create a virtual PC machine running on top of the Mac system. The virtual machine emulates the physical hardware and architecture of a PC and allows you to run PC software on this virtual platform. Virtualization is also really important for stuff like data centers, but I'll save further discussion for a future episode. Next, we have VPN. This stands for Virtual Private Networks. These are means of creating a private network connection, particularly when you're on a public, like, Wi-Fi network. The purpose of a VPN is to encrypt your internet activities and disguise your online identity, something that can be really important if you happen to be working from, say, a public Wi-Fi hotspot, like in a coffee shop or something. The way this works is that you connect to a VPN directly. Uh, your machine essentially makes a connection with the VPN. Then the VPN acts as kind of like your liaison. Uh, when you want to visit a website, for example, your request first goes to the VPN, and the VPN kind of acts like a proxy to retrieve the website data, then sends that data to you, and it's all encrypted. To the website on the other end, it looks like all the requests are coming from the VPN, not from you. So, you know, if you were to go to HowStuffWorks.com, HowStuffWorks.com would see the traffic coming from the VPN, but would not see that go further back to you. This is handy if you want to have some secure connections and not worry about someone, whether it's a hacker or an ISP or the admin of the hotspot that you're using, to know what you're doing. Some companies require employees to use a VPN before accessing internal systems to help mitigate the risk of hacker intrusions. Another way people use VPNs is to bypass region locking. So let's say you want to access a service in another country, but you get a message saying that you're not within the regional service area for that. And this happens a lot with media-based services like streaming video. So... You could use a VPN to make it appear as though you are in that country, and voila, you can access stuff. That is, assuming that the media company hasn't blacklisted the VPN server's IP address and said, this is a VPN, we don't want to allow traffic to it. I don't advocate for this approach. I would rather see region locking just kind of go away rather than suggest you find ways around it. But anyway... VPNs are an important component to secure web browsing. It's also good to research VPNs before joining one. Some VPNs keep a record of users that could potentially become a problem if some other entity ever got hold of it. Other VPNs make it a, a practice to never maintain any kind of record at all, so your use of the service would never become public knowledge, even if, say, law enforcement were to go after it. Next up is VR. This one's easy. It's virtual reality. Basically, it refers to any system in which some, most, or all of your sensory input is coming courtesy of a computer system. Typically, we associate it with systems that include head-mounted displays. That means that everything you see comes from a computer source, and it's usually paired with technology that allows for head tracking so that when you turn your head, the computer reflects this with a change in your perspective. It's a subtype of mixed reality along with AR or augmented reality, which we covered way back at the beginning of this series. 
Next is W3C, the number three. So W3C. This stands for the World Wide Web Consortium, which is a group that develops standards for use on the World Wide Web. Tim Berners-Lee pops up again here as he founded and currently leads the organization. The consortium mainly focuses on getting all the various players in the web to work on an agreed-upon set of standards so that the experience of accessing the web remains consistent, no matter what browser or platform someone happens to be using. Next up, WAN. This is a wide area network. So in a previous episode, we talked about LANs, LANs, or local area networks. Well, a WAN is just a really big network. It's one that spans a large geographic region. So we're talking about a network that measures at least half a mile across, but can be much larger. These networks, like LANs, can be purely self-contained. That means you can have a WAN that does not connect out to the internet. Or they might have interconnections with other types of networks. Next up, we've got WEP. This stands for Wired Equivalent Privacy. It's a type of security algorithm for use with wireless networks. So the idea is that this security algorithm would provide the same sort of privacy that you would experience if you had physically connected all the computers in your network together with cables. So you're trying to prevent the chance for some outside force to snoop in on what's going on with the network. And obviously, this is something to be concerned about when you're dealing with wireless networks, right? I mean, all communications are relying on radio waves, which can be intercepted by anyone with a compatible tuner and antenna. WEP became a security standard back in 1999. It uses encryption to protect network communications, but WEP has fallen out of favor since the mid-2000s. It's not seen as being particularly secure, And our next entry will pick up where WEP left off. So let's move on to it. That would be WPA. This stands for Wi-Fi Protected Access. And this family of security systems are the current recommended ones to have in use for Wi-Fi networks. There are three generations of this currently. You've got WPA, WPA2, and WPA3. To get into the full details of this will require a separate episode because it gets really technical. But it's a good thing to remember that if you have options to set your network security to either WEP or WPA, you should go with WPA. More and more devices, in fact, almost pretty much every device made now is going to be WPA compatible. If you're working with really old tech, you might have some that aren't. But generally speaking, networks should be WPA, preferably WPA3. Next up, we've got WYSIWYG, or W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G. WYSIWYG, it stands for What You See Is What You Get, and it refers to any type of editing software in which what you're seeing as you edit is pretty much what you're going to get with the final finished product. This is easier for me to explain with an old example. So if you've been listening to this series, you heard me talk about when I was making my first web pages decades ago using a text editor to write out all the HTML code. The text document was a collection of markup language tags and then the content. And on casual glance, it looked like a real mess. I mean, you could scan through the document and kind of get an idea of what the web page was all about. But if you just looked at it casually, it looked like a bunch of symbols and letters and numbers and didn't have a whole lot of meaning to it. 
Flash forward a few years, and companies began to develop software that would let people develop a web page without having to manage the actual HTML code. It was more like a word processor. You could view the document as if it were a web page in progress long before you ever uploaded it to a server. So what you see is what you get. The view you have of your web page in progress is what it would look like if someone were to visit it through a browser. Now, there tends to be trade-offs with WYSIWYG interfaces. Uh, you can see right away if something is working or not, but you might have to dig a bit deeper in the user interface to get to some of the more fine-tuning controls. Uh, if you're coding stuff the hard way, you typically have way more precise control over things if you know what you're doing, but it does require a lot more back and forth to make sure that everything's coming out all right. Man, this is making me... Think of the old days when I would use WordPerfect to make documents, and I would have reveal codes on all the time, just so I could see where stuff was like an underline section or where hard returns were, stuff like that. And those were the days, man. I miss those. Next, XML. I touched on this in a previous entry, but it stands for Extensible Markup Language. This language allows users to create and define their own tags. And so this is a meta-textual markup language. Another way to think of it is that XML is information that is wrapped in tags. And XML doesn't actually do anything on its own. You have to write some form of software to interpret and act upon those tags. So for example, if you were to create a document and you wanted to use some XML tags, you might create a tag that reads, you know, open bracket, subheading, close bracket, then you might type, you know, a message that you want to have as a subheading on your document. And then at the end of it, you would type open bracket, slash, subheading, close bracket. But that alone doesn't do anything, right? That's meaningless by itself. But then let's say you create some software to handle how this document gets viewed. And in the creation of that software, you lay out the rules as to how that subheading tag should be displayed within a view of the document. That's what XML does. It creates the opportunity to carry data in a specific way as determined by the tags and the definition of those tags. Now, this is in contrast with HTML, a different markup language, which has predefined tags. And finally, we have Y2K. This was an abbreviation meant to indicate a potentially disastrous problem when the calendar switched from 1999 to 2000. Some of you listening to this might have been born after 2000, or you might have been too young to know what this was all about. And um, I remember, and it was crazy, it mostly boils down to people being uh, a little lazy and relying on work that was never meant to stand the test of time. So let's get to it. Way back in the day, computer programmers were facing some pretty big challenges. And one of those was finding ways to limit the size of programs, both for the sake of simplicity and to conserve computer storage space, which was in short supply early on in the days of programming. To that end, when making programs that needed to reference what year it was, a lot of programmers used a shorthand. They only used the last two digits of the year. So for example, this year would be 21 for 2021. Now this started around the 1960s, so let's be fair to those programmers. They probably did not anticipate that the code they were building was going to be depended upon nearly half a century later. I'm sure they assumed, understandably so, 
that someone, somewhere, at some point would make a better version of the program. And, you know, when stuff like conserving computer storage space wouldn't be as quite a big a concern. You could have code with four digits and not have to take the shorthand approach. But instead, people kept on perpetuating that particular form of programming shorthand. At least a lot of people did. And a lot of systems, particularly systems that would become legacy systems, ones that companies would rely upon because it was just too expensive or too difficult to upgrade everything, so they would just continue to rely on this old infrastructure, a lot of that still relied on that two-digit format for the year. And that works okay until you cross over the end of a millennium. Then you potentially have issues. So when 99 was to become 00, people weren't sure what could happen. I mean, for systems that use the year to calculate stuff like, you know, location data for things like airlines or particular financial data, the worry was that the computer systems would roll over from 99 to 00 and that the computers would essentially assume the current year would not be 2000. It would instead be 1900, and that could be disastrous. Now, this worry led to a global concern bordering on panic in some instances. There were fears that technology ranging from computer systems to airplanes to microwaves might fail because of this oversight. Some companies spent millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to hire programmers to go in and update code to reflect a four-digit year. And in some cases, programmers needed to create complicated software to adjust for hardware that was hard-coded with this two-digit year approach. In the end, when the clock ticked over, there were very few major problems with Y2K, particularly here in the United States. Uh, Part of that reason may have been just that a lot of the most necessary work had already happened. A lot of companies had spent much of 1998 and 1999 addressing the issue. There were a few exceptions, uh, one of which was a particularly scary one. A nuclear energy facility in Japan had some radiation containment equipment fail, but fortunately, backup systems came online immediately, so disaster was averted. Uh, Some countries did see more problems than others. These were typically countries that had not invested nearly as much money into preventing the Y2K issue, so like South Korea had some issues. Uh, I'll probably have to do a full episode about Y2K and talk about all those related issues with code, including some that are similar and had, uh, you know, relating issues. But that is it. We have finally made our way through the alphabet. It only took six episodes. And honestly, I also skipped over some stuff. Like, I didn't talk about GNU very much. But we will save that for a catch-up episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, alphabetically or otherwise, let me know. The best way to do that is through Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 